I know, I know. What a, what a glorious truth, how great thou art. We are here this morning to worship a great God. I think a, a concept that sometimes we forget in the busyness of life and the hecticness of our schedules. We come in here and at times can sing songs and go through routine and sit through a sermon without recognizing the one in whom we've come to worship, our great God. Well, as many of you know, as we prayed, the Clatworthies are out with COVID this week. And so if you will continue to pray for them and pray for those in our community um, over the next few weeks and months. This morning, we're going to be in the book of James. And so if you would turn there, if you do not have a Bible there, should be one located in the seats in front of you. That is our gift to you. And preparing to preach this morning, I read through the book of James a, a number of times, and I couldn't help but notice the influence of the book of James on probably my favorite fiction book of all time, which is The Pilgrim's Progress. The Pilgrim's Progress is a story of a man named Christian who wakes up one morning with a, a burden on his back, and he reads in the book that the city in which he resides will one day be destroyed, and so he sets out on a journey, and along this journey, he falls into a pit of despair. He climbs a mountain of difficulty. He fights a dragon. He meets friends like hopeless and faithful, and he crosses a river called Jordan and eventually arrives at his destination, the celestial city. And throughout the book of, of the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian faces, the Pilgrim faces trials and tests in which they must choose to follow the hard way which the book has laid out for them to go or to take the easier path, the path that sometimes seems more appealing to the eye. Charles Spurgeon said of the Pilgrim's Progress that next to the Bible, the book I value most is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I believe I have read it through at least a hundred times and over the past couple of years has likewise become my favorite fiction book. But we're not here to preach the Pilgrim's Progress this morning. We're not here to worship John Bunyan. Well, there are two ways we can actually read this book. First, we can read it literally as a kind of adventure book, as a fantasy book where a man sits out on a journey and encounters all these things. Or we can read it as John Bunyan intended, which is allegorically. That every character means something greater than what it is at face value. And every test and every trial and every pit that Christian falls into serves as a reminder of the trials we face in this life and that when we face trials we will falter or stumble taking the easy path or we will persevere with steadfastness to the faith in Christ. The idea that we face trials as a means of sanctification is a thread which flows all throughout the book of James. The book of James is often considered the Proverbs of the New Testament because unlike Paul who lays out several chapters of theology before he gets into several chapters of application, James moves from one subject to another almost randomly and he gives advice pastorally. And because of this, James is often pitted against Paul. James, Paul is, some people believe that Paul teaches salvation by faith. James teaches salvation by works. Paul is theological. James is practical. 
And sadly, when we fail to understand and recognize the theology that drives James's application, what, what the book of James often becomes for people is a book of moral teachings, a book of legalism and attitudes that we must force and apply to our lives without any theological undergirding. It's a set of rules or attitudes we must adopt, divorced from faith. And my prayer is that we will see the truth of what James is doing throughout his book that is applying the doctrine of sanctification to specific situations in the church's life. And so if you'll do honor to the reading of God's word, we will read, if instead we'll read John James chapter 1 verses 1 through 15. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, dispersion, greetings. Count it all joys, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich man in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Let us pray this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come and ask that you will open our eyes to see the truth of Scripture. Father, we acknowledge that if we approach your word with human understanding in our own strength, we will fail to recognize what you have revealed. Father, it is only by the grace of the Holy Spirit given to us that we can know the truth of your word. I pray this morning that we will see and understand the theology that is laid out in the book of James that sets the stage for the rest of his instruction. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. The epistle James, I think, gives us the perfect example of why the greetings in Scripture are so important. If we were to skip over the introduction in James and go straight into verse 2, consider it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, we will miss the reason and the purpose we can consider it all joy. So first one, James greets the brothers James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So who is James writing this epistle? I think it is important for us to be resolved in our understanding of who this is because it is important to to the statement that he makes. For most of church history up until about Two to three hundred years ago, which seems to be when the cart, the, the wheels just fell off the cart in church history altogether. But for most of church history, and I believe convincingly that the James that writes this epistle is the brother of Jesus. 
The other James we see in Scripture is James, the son of Zebedee, the, the brother of John, and he is killed by Herod before this letter is written. And so I believe fully with church history that the James that writes this epistle is the brother of Jesus, the brother who prior to the resurrection did not believe in Jesus Christ, as we see in John 7, 5. The brother who, after Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, he reveals himself to along with other apostles, as we see in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. And then the same James that Paul considers to be a pillar of the church in Galatians 2, 9. This is the James who is writing this epistle, which makes this statement, this greeting, all the more profound. James does not write James as an elder of the church. He doesn't even write James, the brother of Jesus, our Messiah, because James recognized that all those earthly qualifications counted for nothing. There was only one title that mattered to James when he penned this letter, and it is James, a servant of God. I can't help but wonder if when James is writing this Psalm 84, verse 10 doesn't come to his mind. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. It is a good thing to be a servant of God because it is far better to be a servant of God than to be king of over all the earth. It is far more precious to be a servant of God than to command troops in the millions. It is a glorious thing to be counted a servant of God. James points to this, I believe, in verses 10 and 11. Let the rich man in his humiliation, because he is like a... Or in verse 9 and 10, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and let the rich man in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of pursuits. He's, he's echoing the preacher of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, that everything we hold in this life is worthless and pales in comparison to the glory of being a servant of God. We're also, I think, drawn to Matthew twelve forty six through 50. And this is Jesus. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers, and this would have included James, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told them, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. James knows that all of his earthly relation to Christ accounts as nothing. But only those who follow God or are redeemed are the true brothers of Christ. And so this idea of being a servant is far more precious to James than having grown up with Jesus. It's the foundation, as we'll see later, for the sanctification that runs through the book of James. And I believe there, there's so much truth we can gauge from just this one simple statement, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning we're going to look at just a few. Understanding we are servants of God protects us from heresy. The heresy of the prosperity gospel, and in fact, the heresy of all works-based salvations, such as Paul addresses in Galatians, inverts this truth that James lays out in the beginning. Instead of man being a servant to God, it makes God a servant 
to the believer. All of the health and wealth, quote-unquote, gospels that we hear preached today are all about if you have enough faith, God will give you health. He will give you finances. He will keep your, good one, your, your loved one alive if you do all that God requires you. In every single one of those systems, it makes God the servant of man. I remember the first time I was asked um, my thoughts on Bethel because someone wanted to do one of their songs in, in the youth group. And because I lack all contemporary culture knowledge, I had to go and find out actually who Bethel was. And I remember sitting down and watching a few of their clips and listening to a few of very loosely their sermons. Um, I, I, I will never forget when I hear, when I heard Bill Johnson's daughter speaking of the Holy Spirit and saying she likes to conceive of the Spirit, quote, like the genie from Aladdin. And he's blue, and he's funny, and he's sneaky. And we hear that, and we understand that that is blasphemous. Because it has made God a servant of man. God exists to give me what I want. He is there to fulfill the hopes and the desires of the believer. But that's those people out there. That, I, I, I don't believe that garbage. And I fear she only verbalizes what, what many people in the church believe in, in their heart. That if we do what God has told us to do, then God owes us financial security. That God owes us a nation in which we can come and worship him without fear of persecution. That God owes my children and my grandchildren salvation. And while all of these things are great and are blessings from God, we must never fall into the mindset that God owes man anything. God is not our servant. Even our prayers unintentionally at times reveal this kind of thought process. Instead of coming before the, lead, before the Lord and asking and pleading with him, we come to the Lord and we demand of him, God do this. God do that. And we never plead and ask the Lord to do anything. We make demands upon him and whether that be from a false understanding or we fall into a lazy habit, we must guard our hearts from such thinking that we can come to the creator of the universe and demand anything from him. And realizing that we are servants, coming before the king who sits on his throne guards us from this idea that we can make demands. It's also why we must understand grace. That God saves men by grace. And as soon as we begin to add our works to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we begin to place demands on God. That as soon as I do something, therefore God owes me something. God works for us. But if I have by grace been saved through faith, which in and of itself is a gift from God, then I can't boast but humbly submit myself as a servant let the lowly brother boast in his elevation and the rich in his humiliation because both are servants of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We have no reason to boast, no reason to, to demand from God because God in his grace has redeemed us. We are servants. And so, and so I believe that understanding we are servants guards and protects us from falling into heresy. And in, and in guarding against heresy, James, gives, James' statement gives us a right understanding of who 
God is. There's a lack of fear and reverency in the church today. That we are inundated by a culture that says Jesus is my homeboy. Or that God is this grandfatherly figure sitting in the clouds looking down on the earth. Or that the Holy Spirit is some kind of force like we see in Star Wars whose only goal is to make us happy and to give us our earthly desires. We fail to see God for who he is. We don't fear and honor God in the church today because we have domesticated God. We don't recognize him for who he has revealed himself to be in scripture. There's a story that we see in Daniel chapter 4 of a man who sought to elevate himself and to bring God low. And this man is Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is king of the Babylonians. He has conquered nations. We actually see in Habakkuk that God has raised up this nation to be a rod of justice against the nation of Judah. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and I will encourage you to go and read it. We won't this morning, but he has a dream of a statue and a dream of a large tree, and he asks Daniel to interpret it, and Daniel tells him that the dream means that God will bring him low. And then we read in Daniel four twenty-eight through 30, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence and the glory and for the glory of my majesty. And Nebuchadnezzar elevates himself and he places himself as worthy of glory and honor and praise. And the following thing in the text is God immediately turns him into a beast and sends him out to the field for a number of years. But I want us to hear the account of Nebuchadnezzar's response when he looks and turns his eyes to heaven and sees God for who God is. Daniel 4, 34-35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is not a picture of God that many people sing about in churches. The powerful, almighty God who does as he wills and no man can look at him and question his ways. We rarely sing of the overwhelming majesty of God who holds all things in his hand. Churches rarely consider that God is sovereign over all of creation from the hurricanes to the beetle to the actions of men. That God alone rules the universe from the furthest galaxy to the mightiest earthly kingdom. Yes, God is imminent. Yes, God draws close to to the lowly, to the weary and broken. Yes, he is our father in heaven. But God is transcendent. God is holy, God is just, God is righteous. God is not a creature, and he is separate from his creation. We must protect and understand that God is not man writ large, but he is God, the creator. He alone is worthy of honor and praise. And by using the term servant, doulos, James is not revealing a God who is begging and pleading and manipulating his 
creation, he is picturing a God who commands his people and his people act, who leads and loves and protects his redeemed. It's by understanding who God is that we then rightly recognize who we are. James, a servant of God. Scripture is filled with beautiful language of who we are in our relationship with Christ, who we are in Christ. We are adopted sons and daughters. We are children of God. We are heirs with Christ. We are love, elected, chosen, predestined, redeemed. We are servants. We don't often consider how wonderful that term is. We have a king who protects us. We have a king who loves us. We have a king who is perfectly righteous, who is perfectly just, who does all things in holiness. And when we understand that this is who our king, our God is, then we understand that as his servants doing his will, we seek to do justice. We seek to do righteousness. We seek to be holy. So we must have a correct view of ourselves. We were created to glorify and honor God. We were created to serve God by filling the earth with his glory. Yet man rebelled and all of human, humanity fell into sin. We are by nature sinners. We live in the kingdom of darkness doing the will of our father, the devil, as Jesus says in John eight forty four. What we must recognize is that as human beings, we are servants regardless. We will either be servants to sin or we will be servants to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Far too often we falsely assume that we're somehow neutral, that we're not servants of God, that we're not servants of sin until we decide to do something, until we decide to choose, and then we fall into one of those two categories. Yet Scripture testifies against this falsehood, declaring that we are always servants. We are servants to sin by nature, by birth, or we are servants to God by our new nature and by our new birth. In the midst of dealing with sexual sin in Corinth, Paul writes, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. As believers, we're called to glorify God. This is our service to our King who has redeemed us. It goes hand in hand. We don't get the option and the choice to make Jesus Christ our Savior, but not our Lord. When we are redeemed, Jesus Christ becomes both our Savior and our Lord. Understanding that your servants to God is understanding who God is and glorifying Him for who He is by repenting of our sins and clinging to Jesus Christ in faith. We read this morning Romans six sixteen through 19. Do you not know if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, doulos, the same word that James uses at the beginning of his book, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? You're slaves either to sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin having become slaves of righteousness i am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness 
leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. We must understand that we are servants of God, that we seek to be holy as He is holy. We must understand that as we're being people of God, when we meet many trials as we see in James 1 or, and 2, or, or when we, or someone with earthly posterity is among us as we see in James 2, or when we engage with one another as we see in James 4, we will either submit ourselves to our old taskmaster's sin, or we will submit ourselves to God. We will either choose to be a servant of sin, or we will choose to be a servant of God. And so the, the, the distinction that James, a servant of God, is vital for understanding the entire book. This introduction also gives us a right view of our relationship to the body of Christ. One of the primary issues that James addresses in his book is the distinctions that were made within the body. There were those who were rich and had some earthly title and they were somehow elevated over other people and other people were viewed as less than. So James lays out this basic theology in the beginning of the book that we are all servants of God echoing what Paul says in Galatians 2 27 and 28 for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ there is neither Jew there is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free there is no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus as the body of Christ we are all servants of Christ Regardless of our age, regardless of our spiritual maturity, regardless of our financial capabilities, we are all equally servants of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This, this, is, this should color how we view everything that we do. That instead of being upset and bickering over the preferences of musical standards, we seek to serve and love one another in Christ for the glory of God. Instead of, of seeing a need and letting someone else fill it because that's not my responsibility, we seek to serve others by filling those needs. We look for opportunities to serve one another. We considered it in our core commitment this morning of humility, of counting others more important than ourselves. That we are to serve the body of Christ. The elevation of positions and people leads to rotten death within the church. Some of the worst, petty, vile arguments that we see in, in, in the church are because people have forgotten their status as servants of God. Instead of seeing themselves as, as serving God, they begin to see other people as serving them. One common problem in, in the Baptist life, that the, to the point that it's almost become stereotypical, is this idea of the prestige, quote-unquote, of, of, of the deacon board. Where men desire to be deacon, not in order to serve the body, but to somehow have a status up and over the body. To have a title. Deacon boards filled with sinful men who seek control and seek power. Who seek to be able to go to work and say, I'm a deacon at such and such church. To exert their will in meanings. They have no heart to serve, but to be served. No heart to serve, but to control. And it's not just a plague in deacon boards across the Baptist life. It occurs in 
the pastorate too. Many men have sought to be pastors for the exact same reason. That instead of seeking to serve the body by rightly dividing the word of truth, they seek to build their kingdoms. They seek to attract men by their personalities instead of preaching the truth of God. They seek to build their kingdom here on earth. And it's not just men in church offices. Women have served on committees to exert their authority in whatever aspect that might be. Or women who speak of their husbands and say, yes, he might be the head, but I'm the neck and I control where the head turns. And all of this reveals a heart that doesn't seek to serve. A heart that doesn't truly believe it's a servant to God, but a heart that seeks to be served by others. All of these examples display a heart that views other people as less than me, as less than myself. Yes, we might be in the body, but I'm the pastor and everyone else is beneath me. Yes, we're all servants of God, but I'm a deacon and everyone else is beneath me. And we, we, we buy into this falsehood, this, this grotesque idea of the church. Men and women seeking to serve themselves by using the body to body of Christ to exert their will. And it leads to a multitude of sins. This introduction, James, a servant of God, draws itself out in James 4, 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot attain, so you fight and quarrel. You have, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And James in this, this passage is addressing people who do not see themselves as servants of God. These are people who are seeking their preferences to be filled, their desire to be filled. And when it's not met, they, they become hostile and aggressive to all those around them. And so James, the brother of Jesus the Messiah, a pillar of the church, lays out a theology at the beginning of his letter that will shape and inform the rest of his letter. All of that accounts for nothing. I am a servant. James, a servant of God, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, serving the people of God. In the body of Christ, there are many different giftings and responsibilities, but the, the title that matters the most to all of us is we are servants of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This must be what drives and directs our interaction with each other. That we are not better than each other, that someone, because they sin differently, is, is somehow less than me. We are all called to serve God and serve one another. And as such, we seek to serve together in ways that bring glory and honor to God. We don't serve in ways to have our will fulfilled. We serve to fulfill the will of God. And then lastly, understanding that we are servants of God gives us a right view of our purpose. The reason that James can begin verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds is because that as a servant of God, there's a greater purpose in our life. There's a greater purpose in his life. When we understand that our entire purpose for living, our entire purpose in being redeemed is to glorify God, then we can start to see everything in our life as an opportunity to serve God. 
James, a servant of God, sees trials and tests as an opportunity to bring glory to God. Not to wallow in self-pity, but to say, I'm going to glorify God in this situation no matter how much it hurts me physically. No matter how much suffering and pain I have, I count it joy because here's an opportunity in which I can serve my God. He lays out a greater purpose for our lives. Um, one of Joel Osteen's books, Your Best Life Now. I don't mention this book because I recommend it. He is a heretic, and I encourage you never to read it. And if you find a copy, buy it, burn it. But I mention it because I think it summarizes what our culture has bought into, that we are to live our best life now. And it's not just the culture that has bought into it out there. It is people within the body of Christ who who believe that God wants us to be happy That God's ultimate purpose for his people is to find enjoyment in this life. Therefore, anything that makes you happy can be justified. Anything that is laid out in Scripture as sin is written off because all that really matters is God wants you to live your best life now. And that's not, like I said, a plague out there. I think that's a plague inside the church. We've come to believe that the greatest purpose for us in this life is our comfortability is our happiness. As the American church, we've been blessed to avoid persecution, I think, almost to its detriment. That now we see churches casting off truth to conform to culture. That any time there might be some slight hint of persecution, we must change what we believe, what we say, what we do to please culture. For so long, we've been willing to throw away truth and to avoid it. Church culture has often chosen to follow worldly culture in an attempt to seek and save the lost, but also as an attempt to live comfortably among it. If my faith never disagrees with culture, then I'm never going to have issues with my neighbors. If my faith always agrees with culture, then I'm never going to have to worry about, be a, I'm never going to have to worry to I'm never going to have to be worried about repenting of my sins because all that matters is God wants me to be happy. And that's just not, that, that's not just hipster culture of, of, of today. This has been taking place over the past few hundred years. This is sweet tea, buttered biscuits, Bible belt culture that we have cast off truth so we look like our neighbor's. That, that, that we have made songs and twisted songs that we, we sing to bring us happiness and joy and peace and, and, and all these earthly things that don't brush up against culture. The church has sacrificed truth for centuries to appease those around them for the sake of being comfortable. Preachers have failed to preach the truth of God's word. Many men, when convicted to preach the truth of God's word, have cast it off for fear of losing their job, for fear that the congregation might be upset if they preach the truth of God's word so they've changed what they've believed. To be comfortable, to be happy, this is their purpose. This goal of comfortability and happiness has been a boon in the church for centuries. But in the greeting, James lays out a greater purpose than our happiness here on earth, a greater purpose than our comfortability, our purpose of being a servant of God. This is the lens in which we view not only 
the book of James, but our entire lives, that when we face trials and temptation and suffering, we see these as opportunities to serve God. We accept that this world lies in the power of the evil one. And as we walk through this world as pilgrims heading toward the celestial city, it will cost us much. We will lose and suffer in service to God here on earth. Our great joy in service to God is to do the will of God. To obey God because we know that all that God does is good and right. Even if all of culture stands against us, we stand with our King. The call of the believer is desire to do the will of God. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed be the meek, blessed when you are persecuted, Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God is transcendent. He is holy. His name is righteous. And what's next? Your kingdom come, your will be done. We must rightly see who God is and then recognize that our role as God's children are to do his will, to serve our God. The heart of the servant is to do the will of the master. Jesus Christ brings the kingdom of God. God redeems people, building his kingdom here on earth. And as his servants, we do the will of God. And God has revealed his will to us in Scripture. This is why we must cling to Scripture. Why we must understand that it is the only sufficient rule for our life. That we live out the pages of Scripture because God has revealed his will in the pages of Scripture. Our desire should be to hunger and thirst for righteousness to consume the word that we might better serve our king how do we know what our king wants us to do how do we know what our king wants us to pursue how do we know how do we know how the king wants to move his kingdom forward he has revealed it in his word and as his servants this is where we cling to knowing that true joy eternal joy comes from serving the only one worthy of worship and the call as servants is a call to die to self, to daily take up our cross and follow after Christ. The call as servants will cost us friendships. It will cost us our recreation time. It will cost us comfort. But we do so joyously because we serve a great high king. James is instructing the church that as servants, we are to do the will of God regardless of the circumstances. We count it all as lost and in the surpassing glory of knowing Christ. That when we, we can count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds because we know that God has a purpose in our trials. That we don't face trials and hardships and suffering willy-nilly. That God has a purpose in all that he allows his children to endure. Romans eight twenty eight. we know, Paul writes, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We can count all joy. We can find comfort because we know that our king works all things for the good of his people, that God works all things for his glory. I don't know about you, but it, but it seems like maybe 
Paul and James agree a whole lot more than some people might make it out to be after all. But the service to God is foolish to the unbeliever. There's a reason that when we talk about the fact that this life is not about you upsets so many people. And sadly, some of the most upset people we find are in the church. It's because serving God is foolish to the unbeliever. If God is truly good, if God actually cared, then he wants me to be happy. He wants us to have peace here on earth. He wants us to to love one another and to get along and not have any issues. He wants us to do whatever it is that makes us happy. To say that you are called as a believer to serve God by denying the pleasures of the flesh, by repenting of your sins and clinging to to, to Christ by, by throwing off the flesh and mortifying the sins of the flesh for the glory of God rubs against the rebellious nature of sinful men. Men who are dead in their sins and trespasses always seek to serve their master, sin. All that they do, all that we did in our rebellion was in service to sin. Every single thing we did before God in our sins and trespasses was as a servant to sin. I had the opportunity to, to talk to Cam before, before service this morning and talking about good. And, and, and before God, no one is good. And the recognition that although horizontally we might consider the acts of men to be decent and good, when they are all put before God, they are unrighteous. They are all sinful. This is who we are. We serve our master, sin. Yet God in his great love sent his son to redeem for himself a people to free them from service to sin and bring them into service of him, a people who through the blood of Christ would count this world as lost and to serve him and him alone. Paul, of all his worldly accomplishments, concludes in Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The only true joy we have servants as servants of God is being conformed into the image of Christ. This is our sanctification. This is the driving theology that runs throughout the entire book of James. This is the aspect that if we leave it off, we fail to completely understand what James is doing. That our joy is to be conformed into the image of Christ. And so our service to God is in the pursuit of holiness. This is what is being said in such a simple statement by being James. By by. James's introduction. James, an elder of the church. James, related by blood to Jesus. I count it all as loss. None of that matters to the surpassing glory of knowing Jesus Christ, of serving God. This is the driving foundational truth for 
James. And if we do not understand this foundation, then we will look at James as a book of moral teachings, which always leads to legalism. When we forget the theological underpinnings of why James addresses things as he addresses them, then we fall into legalism. But when we rightly understand that we are servants of God, and we rightly look to God as who he has revealed himself to be, acknowledging who we are, then we know as many catechisms throughout church history have testified the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is our purpose as servants to God, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Brothers, we are first and foremost servants of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. If you will pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you to acknowledge that you are our King, that you are our Lord, that you alone are worthy of worship. Father, we often in our sin fall back to seeking to serve our own master. Father, and in those moments, I pray that you would bring us to repentance, that we would turn from our sin and that we would cling to Christ. Father, if there is one in here who is not redeemed, I pray that you would bring them to new life, that you would free them from sin, that you would make them a servant of you. Father, I pray that we would rightly understand who we are in light of your majesty. Father, that the term servant isn't a degrading term. Father, because if we are servants of a perfect justice, just, righteous king such as you are, then we are loved and protected in a way that we could never fully grasp. Father, I pray that we would lay all of our false understandings before the light of your word. 